starts with water. Gotta have water. <laughs> All life, as far as we know, requires water. There may be and there certainly is water without life. No life without water. We are terrestrial, so we have this bias about where the action is and what really matters, but aliens coming from somewhere else wanting to explore the Earth, they'd probably jump in the ocean first because that's where the greatest diversity of life is. That's where most of life on Earth actually is. The ocean of today looks probably pretty much the way it did a thousand years ago from the surface. But under the surface, a lot has changed. That's Sylvia Earle. She is one of the greatest marine scientists of all time. She's so revered, her colleagues sometimes refer to her as her deepness. And for the past 20 years, she's been an explorer in residence at National Geographic. Well, Sylvia has always said it the best. We may call it planet Earth, but it really is planet ocean. And that's David Dubillet, a National Geographic underwater photographer who's taken some of the most stunning, iconic pictures of life below sea level. Water. Clear water is one of the great joys, is one of the free rides of our planet. And for the last few decades, myself and my partner Jennifer Hayes have gone beneath the skin of the sea to make images and show people a world, and it's most of our world, that is rich, strange, but above all, beyond imagination. Sylvia Earle and David Dubillet have each spent more time underwater than most of you listening put together. They have dedicated their lives to discovering and sharing the wonder and the beauty of the oceans. But over the course of their careers, they've witnessed dramatic changes in the deep. And so each has another more urgent purpose now to teach the rest of us that while the oceans may be vast, they are not infinite. They regulate our climate and our weather. They provide us with most of the air we breathe, and we disregard them at our own peril. We dive in deep on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Go back to 10,000 years ago when civilization first really began to prosper. Our numbers were in the little M millions. It took until 1800, fast forward 10,000 years, to reach a billion people. When I arrived in the 1930s, there were about two billion people. So from that point to the present time, 
there's been more change in the nature of the natural world that keeps us alive than during all preceding history. It's a staggering thought. Sylvia Earle says that the planet's recent population explosion on land has created two broad problems for the ocean. One, what we take out. In other words, fish and sharks and turtles. And two, what we put in. Garbage, sewage, chemicals. And I find it incredible to think about, but when Sylvia Earle and David Dubelay were starting down their respective paths, disposable plastics, which have wreaked havoc on our oceans, didn't even exist. They didn't come about until the 1960s and 70s. Remember that classic scene in The Graduate where Benjamin, played by babyface Dustin Hoffman, gets career advice from his dad's friend? I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. The Graduate was made in 1967. By then, Sylvia Earle and David Dubelay had already begun the work they still do today. So before we get further into the dire state of our oceans, let's spend some time hearing what drew each of our explorers to live their lives largely underwater. Throughout this episode, I'll move back and forth between their stories, starting here first with Sylvia Earle, who grew up on a farm in New Jersey. And I was very lucky, I think, in having parents that, far from discouraging me, quite the other way around, used to bring frogs over for my brothers and for me to get to know, but always very carefully to put them back again, put them back in the pond where they were found, or to allow a caterpillar to gently walk across your hand, not to disturb them because you might get stung by some of their bristles. But I learned very early on that if you show respect for other creatures, they won't deliberately go out of their way to harm you. So I grew up more or less fearless with respect to all sorts of things, spiders, squirrels, birds, because of the gentleness that both my father and mother expressed toward our fellow citizens on the planet. When I was 12, my parents moved from New Jersey to Florida, and then my backyard did become the Gulf of Mexico. We did live right on the water. So instead of going out to climb trees and watch the squirrels and otherwise have the fun of being out in the hills, I had the pleasure of getting acquainted with salt marshes and seagrass beds that were populated with things such as seahorses and sea urchins and great crabs with long spindly legs that were were just so absolutely fascinating. You just never knew what you're going to find just walking around in these squishy but beautiful clear water areas in a place that used to be really a place that lived up to its name. It's called Clearwater, but at the time I was there as a child, it had clear water. <laughs> it is not that way anymore. <laughs> David Dubelay's origin story is less likely. So you didn't exactly grow up on the beach. <laughs> I grew up in a real hotbed of underwater photography, which was New York City, New York, right in the heart of the city. And uh, you know, when you're uh, when you're an eight-year-old kid growing up in the city in the summer, 
A lot of us were sent to camp in the Adirondacks in the mountains, and I hated it. Uh, it was it was mountains, and I, I I had asthma. I managed to wheeze my way up a few Adirondack peaks. I didn't like the horse. I didn't particularly like baseball. They sent me down to the waterfront, where two enormous 14-year-old counselors said, "Hey, kid." Why don't you go under the dock and clean out all the branches? And uh, here's a mask, a blue French mask. I remember it absolutely distinctly as an eight-year-old as an eight-year-old kid. And I put the mask on my face, molded it to my face. I put my head underwater, and my life changed. Why? What did it feel like? I was weightless. I could breathe. Asthmatics, when they go in the water, just all of a sudden, all the weight of the world and all the weight on their lungs is lifted. A lot of asthmatic people are great swimmers. But I could breathe and I could see, and there were shafts of light coming down, and fish swimming through this, this blue-green, simple lake in the Adirondacks. And what they really wanted me to see was an enormous water spider. Actually, they're called dock spiders. They're the side of, size of a butter plate. They live under the dock. And they wanted me to see that and uh, get completely freaked out because that's the joy of 14-year-old camp counselors. But it had the opposite effect. It was mesmerizing. When he got back home and was with his parents at the Jersey Shore, he managed to acquire his first pair of flippers. They were green. They looked like lily pads. And they were made by a company called Frankie the Frogman. His mask and his snorkel, he can still recall, were blue. But mostly what he remembers of that first dip in the ocean with his gear is what he calls the absolute parade of life under the water. You know, Cousteau wrote about this in in a book called The Silent World. When I was 10, I read it constantly over and over again, almost like a Bible. And he wrote about the first time, and this is Jacques Cousteau, the inventor of the aqualung, he wrote about the first time he put his head underwater, and he was in a little tiny beach in the south of France, and he looked up and he could see a trolley car going past on the other side of the beach. He could see people screaming and yelling on the beach. He could see clouds and, and, and birds, and he put his head underwater, and he said this wonderful line, I put my head underwater, and civilization vanished with one last bow. This is... This is the world we live in. It is a planet of water. I should mention, by the way, that David Dubelay was interviewed by Washington Post correspondent Mary Jordan for the Academy of Achievement in 2018. Sylvia Earle was interviewed twice, in 2001 by Mark Pachter, and before that in 1991 by Gail Eichenthal. It was during that earlier interview that Earle also talked about the childhood book that influenced her. I fell in love with the stories by William Beebe, who was an ocean explorer. He discussed how to, what it was like to go down inside a submersible and to peer out of the porthole and see beautiful luminescent fish with lights down the side, like ocean liners, and bizarre creatures of a sort that you just don't see walking down the street or going into the forest or even looking around in shallow water. The aquariums of the world as wonderful and diverse as they are in terms of the creatures they show, do not have the sort of creatures that Beebe described from his exploration back in the 1930s. And that certainly, 
I found utterly inspiring. Even though Sylvia Earle's interest was piqued most, it seems, by animals, she had a college professor who taught her that studying plants can give you the best understanding of how entire natural systems function. Plants provide shelter, food, and energy. To a scientist, they also provide endless clues and evoke endless questions. And so marine botany became Earle's starting point when she was still an undergraduate. This was in the early 1950s. Scuba diving technology was still pretty novel. Scuba, by the way, if you don't know, stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Earl became one of the very first marine scientists to employ the new scuba technology for research. Every time I went out in the ocean with a scuba tank, I saw things that weren't in the books. I can still do it. <laughs> it's still that unexplored. The oceans are still virtually unknown, but particularly back in the mid-50s and on into the through the 60s and the 70s. Um, as people gradually became excited about this technique, at first scuba diving was considered to be a sport so much fun that a scientist couldn't possibly be using it to any serious advantage. Uh, I found that using scuba was rather like using a microscope. It enabled me to see things better that I could catch a glimpse of from the surface, but it was such a difference to actually be there and get to know creatures interacting, like using, maybe made it possible for me to really use the ocean as a laboratory. My colleagues, by and large, who studied the ocean either operated from the surface, dangling nets and dredges and bottles and dr pulling fragments up and looking at the bits and pieces glommed together in a mass on the day. I've done a lot of this myself, but it forces you to be a great detective trying to put the pieces of the puzzle back together again and imagine what things are like below. I had a chance to actually go below, at least within the range of diving depth, and see for myself. It's like, huh, try to imagine doing a similar thing, dragging nets or dredges through a city. You bring it back up and dump the contents out on the deck and imagine <laughs> the fragments of this, the chunks of that. Well, I think I gained a certain amount of confidence in having been there, seen for myself, and aware that I could contribute something special. David Dubelay, a decade younger than Sylvia Earle, also entered his profession just as technology was about to open entirely new possibilities for underwater photography. Let's go back to when you first picked up a camera and brought it underwater. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. I wanted to take pictures underwater. It was a new and upcoming, well, it was a new and upcoming art. Uh, and in the mid, mid and late 50s, it was pretty primitive. You could make your own underwater camera housing. That's the, the box that the camera came in. And the simplest way of doing it was taking a rubber bag, and my father, who's a professor of surgery at, at New York University, brought home a rubber anesthesiologist's bag. And if you stretched it, you could stretch it over a faceplate, the remains of an old mask. They had bands on it. You put the camera in the bag, you put the glass of the faceplate over there, 
you put the band around it, and there you had an underwater housing. You could manipulate the controls of the camera through the rubber walls of the bag and make pictures. And the camera of choice, well, that was a brownie Hawkeye. And the pictures that I made the first time around were absolutely terrible. How old were you? I think I was 12. So you said, hey, Dad, I'd like to take some pictures underwater. And he said, hey, I've got some stuff at the hospital that might help. No, we, we looked in a book, and we found this. Actually, I found it, the directions of how to make this uh, very primitive underwater housing. You've been doing this for almost half a century. It's shocking because you don't look like yeah. that. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just stunning. But that's a long time for yeah. technological changes. How has the technology changed your job underwater? I'd like to talk about technology for a minute now. When I first came to National Geographic, photographers, underwater photographers, could not photograph what they saw. It was, it was a battle to try and make an image because we couldn't see wide and we couldn't see close. And a, a National Geographic photographer named Bates Little Hales invented a housing called the Ocean Eye. This is in 1969 when I first started to work at Geographic. And it revolutionized underwater photography. It corrected the magnification. It let us use super wide-angle lenses that Nikon and other companies were coming out with. It opened up the sea. It let me make the pictures that I saw. And every single underwater picture you've ever seen, whether it's in a magazine or an advertisement or a motion picture, its DNA relates back to this invention, which was invented at National Geographic. Every single one. And we battled with this. We battled with the fact that the camera could only take 36 exposures. And clearly, you can't take change film underwater or change lenses. I would go in the field with as many as 10 different cameras on a dive. And that would give me 360 exposures if I shot all 10 in the space of 90 minutes or two hours. And the digital revolution changed a lot of that. Now we can make as, almost as many pictures as we can possibly take. You know, light is so important, obviously, to a photographer. Can you tell us, how do you physically light up the darkness of the ocean? Light is everything in the ocean, you're right. And uh, the first few feet of water, color red disappears, and bit by bit, most of that end of the spectrum goes. So that by the time you're at 60 feet, red is black. Color red is black. And strangely enough, if you cut yourself, you bleed green. Now, if you take down a strobe, an, an electronic flash, it's like a bottle of sunlight. And if you uncork that bottle of sunlight, in other words, push the, tr push the trigger of the camera, the reef or anywhere else underwater explodes with light and you see colors that have never really been seen before because they're not colors of uh, the surface, they're colors beneath the sea and they have an extraordinary palette. Brilliant reds, yellows, oranges, colors that you can't even imagine. So every photographer 
has to supplement light. You are, in essence, trying to catch these creatures, and you have in your hand an underwater camera. Uh, you look a little bit like a spider crab, a giant spider crab, and you position these lights as you're moving, as you're swimming, so it's basically being a studio photographer running through some place on, on land, running through a field and trying to catch that moment, that decisive moment. The changes in underwater camera equipment are just part of what has transformed David Dubelet's ability to capture the decisive moments he's after. He's also, of course, benefited enormously from improvements in the same equipment that Sylvia Earle uses to go deeper and stay longer under the water. Earl has been at the forefront of lots of technological innovations, some that we'll hear about in a bit she has helped create, others she has helped test, like the Tektite, an underwater laboratory where crews of marine scientists and engineers lived for weeks at a time in 1969 and 1970. Sylvia Earle was more than qualified to participate but there was a hurdle she had to get over, her sex. In 1969, a notice was circulated among universities in the United States and elsewhere that scientists who were interested in living underwater for two weeks, if they were interested, to submit a proposal about what they would do given that opportunity. There was no mention of male or female. It was just sent around with no comment. So I put together a proposal of what I would like to do and sent it off to the Smithsonian Institution. They were doing the review process for the research proposals. And I was surprised when I got a call back and there was some hemming and hauling on the other end of the line about they thought the project was really good, but well, what did I think about actually maybe spending, getting together with some other women to stay in this project? I really wanted to go with three other fellow scientists, all fish people, ichthyologists. I was the plant person. I thought we could work together. We had agreed that this would be a good project to do together. But the powers that be in Washington in 1970 now, this was by the time the proposals all came through, were really appalled at the thought of men and women living together underwater. So they came up with a scheme to have a women's team. And there were enough qualified women with qualified proposals that it did develop that way. We became quite a curiosity, and I can see why, in a, in a sense. It was, uh, there should not really have been a selection on that basis. It, w it worked out just fine, but the idea that the reason was more a social one than a scientific one, that they put us together as a team, uh, made it a little artificial. We met on our way to the Virgin Islands where the project took place, became acquainted essentially on an airplane. <laughs> Describe uh, the environment that you lived in uh, for two weeks underwater. The Tektite habitat was described by some as the Tektite Hilton. <laughs> it's a beautiful four-room underwater motel, hotel, laboratory. They're, the outside appearance resembled well, some kind of large kitchen appliance. It was white, two columns side by side with cords running off to one side that supplied the, the power, the water, and the air. The system was 
constructed by General Electric, and we tease them, saying that, well, naturally, it looks like a big kitchen appliance, but in any case, inside was, was very um, comfortable. In fact, NASA engineers had something to do with trying to look at human factors, looking at living underwater as a counterpart for living in space. So um, efforts were made to really focus on what would make a pleasant living surrounding, so carpets on the floor. There was a television set, although nobody bothered much to watch it because outside there was the greatest show on Earth, literally, with the constant changing scene of fish and other creatures that would come by. And we had the ability to range out as much as a quarter of a mile away using either scuba tanks or the rebreather systems. The opportunity to get to know the fish was extraordinary. We found soon that a fish is not a fish is not a fish, that they all are different as individuals. Of the five angelfish that I saw almost every morning, I'd get up before dawn so that I could watch the change over time when the night fish, uh, the ones that are active at night tuck in, and when the day fish, the ones that sleep at night, come out, just as on land there are creatures, not just fish, a lot of other things as well. Carls even, there's some that are open at, by day, and others, many more in fact, that are open at night. Complete changeover of the kinds of creatures that are obvious at night and at day. And so I wanted to be out there just at that moment, that half hour or so, just at, at dawn. And, the five angelfish that were almost always there. They're all angelfish, like all Labrador retrievers, or all or have certain waggy tail kinds of characteristics that are identify them as Labrador retrievers, but everyone is different. Some are more shy, some are more aggressive, some are more curious. Some kinds of fish, like groupers, have a particular kind of personality that make it very tough to eat fish after you've gotten to know them on a one-to-one -one basis. I certainly don't eat anybody I know personally anymore. <laughs> but we were just one of 10 teams in all. The other were all male teams. We constituted the only all women's team. The previous team left some nice little mementos around, such as a little sign over one of the portholes on the habitat that said, in case of fire, break glass. <laughs> this 50 feet underwater, of course. And then on the shower curtain, because NASA was interested in the behavior of the aquanauts as an analog for what might happen to astronauts in space, 24 hours a day, they had cameras inside looking at what we were doing. Well, it was all right with the men's, men's team and the men watching the men, but what about men watching the women in the shower? Well, they put a shower curtain up there, but so is not to discourage the poor watchers, they put a pinup on the outside of the shower curtain. So nice little mementos such as that greeted our arrival. Let's just pause and remember that sailors once considered it bad luck to have a woman on a ship at all. They never met Sylvia Earle, I guess. But despite society's expectations for women in the 1940s and 50s, Earle says she never considered that her career options were limited. And thank goodness for Professor Hum, the one who introduced her to marine botany and to scuba diving, because he was also the one who encouraged her to block any of the noise that might discourage her from pursuing her aquatic dreams. There are some real problems in science, real problems in many walks of life, in being a woman, 
And yet, in a curious way, because I'm a woman, I've taken a different look at things. Not, you know, I think if I'd been at the same point in life where I had some choices to make about whether I'd get married and have children, I did, and <laughs> I do have children, grandchildren. But I, I, perhaps as a man, would have gone on in a more traditional route in a university of, because I'd have a family to take care of and needed a steady job. But as a woman, I had some, and it sounds contraintuitive, but I had greater flexibility in some ways to carve out an, my own course than if I had taken a position at a university or in a business or whatever and had to you know, s stay in the structure that most men in a professional undertaking find themselves. Nobody expected me to have to be <laughs> behind a desk or here. So I could I had the luxury of being able to choose a project that I wanted to do and do it on my own time because I had to <laughs> find my own means of support because I had to and sometimes doing it with nickels and dimes instead of big grant money that many of my male colleagues have undertaken. So, you know, I think while I've, I've been told frequently that I couldn't go here or there or somewhere else because women just don't do this, if you just don't accept that but find a way around or over or under or just take a different tack, chances are you can get to where you want to go anyway, even though it's not the traditional thing. And that's, I, I, that advice is, goes to young men as well as to young women. There are lots of reasons that people will find to say, no, you can't. I mean, either you're too tall, you're too short, or you're too dark, or you're too light, or you're too old, or you're too young, or you're from this part of the country, or that part of the country, whatever it is, there are a bazillion excuses about why you can't. But we have to keep strong in your heart, in your mind, is knowing that, well, okay, so it's going to be a little tougher, but I'll find a way to get around. And instead of thinking of these adversities as showstoppers, think of them as making life more interesting. And maybe you'll come up with a way that nobody's thought of yet, because you've had to go a different course. It doesn't mean you can't get to where your heart tells you you need to be. And she has proven that again and again, like in the early 90s when she was named Chief Scientist of NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, the massive government agency that oversees fisheries, coastal restoration, marine commerce, the National Weather Service, and the protection of marine species, among other things. And certainly a decade before that, when she set the record for the deepest untethered dive in history, which is when she earned the nickname, Her Deepness. She made that historic trip to the ocean floor, 1,250 feet below, in something called a gym suit, which looked and worked pretty much like a clunky white astronaut suit, weighing in at 1,000 pounds. You might have seen one if you ever watched the James Bond movie, For Your Eyes Only. Unlike the villain in the movie, though, Sylvia Earle made her gym suit expedition six miles off the coast of Hawaii in the middle of the day to evaluate its possibilities for scientific exploration. I imagined that it would be completely dark, just black, black, dark, but it wasn't. 
there was enough sunlight coming down at midday in this clear ocean water that it looked like the deepest indigo, like twilight. And while there weren't stars visible to me, there were bioluminescent creatures that were flashing with their blue fire. Some of the same creatures that I had become enchanted with in my childhood years by reading the works of William Beebe. He looked out of the porthole of the, his little bathysphere and saw little fish go by with blinking lights, saw octopuses that flashed with blue fire. And instead of squirting a puff of, of black ink, the squids and the octopuses that he described sometimes squirted a puff of bioluminescent ink. What good does black ink do in a black environment? It's nice to have something that flashes with, with it, that will distract a, a would-be predator. And a puff of bioluminescent glow-in-the-dark substance is what they do. I saw a shark, but it wasn't a big one. It was only about 18 inches or so long with a luminous green eye. Just so many wonderful creatures. I think most interesting was perhaps a whole field of coral, but not branching coral, just single whisker-like spirals of coral that grew from the seafloor up over my head. Some of them were six feet tall or so. Bamboo coral, generally a pale white structure, like a big bed spring, a big spiral with bands of black. But when I touched the living polyps, it just flashed with rings of blue luminescence. If I touched up near the top, you could see the pulses of blue, like little blue donuts of light pulsing all the way down the spiral of the, of the coral. And if I touched it near the bottom, I could send in motion simultaneously pulses of light coming from the bottom and from the top. <laughs> it was wonderful to be able to be there. If I had used a net or a dredge, the typical oceanographic techniques, I might have captured some of that coral. But certainly I wouldn't know that they flashed with that blue fire. We're going to swim our way back here to David Dubelet for a bit to hear about some of the most breathtaking discoveries he has made through his lens while exploring the world's waterways with his wife, fellow photographer Jennifer Hayes. We've looked, uh, we've looked in a lot of different places underwater in this voyage of discovery. And remember, every time you fall backwards off the boat, it is a voyage of discovery. For instance, we went underwater, not in the ocean, but in the Okavanga Delta, one of the more incredible assignments we've ever had and one of the most dangerous because we were dealing with a rather large multicellular animal called a Nile crocodile, very large. And they have a saying there that uh, the Okavanga River is life, but beneath it is death. And very few people have ever gone underneath there. We dove at night, unbelievably beautiful. But at the edge of the pool of light, you could see two eyes. The glowing, they glow like coals. Those are the eyes of the crocodiles. And if they're this far apart, they're small, but if they're this far, far apart, they're very large. This far apart is almost a foot wide. And as these eyes got closer and closer and closer, our guides, Andy and Brad Bestelink, would say, David, Jennifer, get out of the water, get out now. And I would say one more picture because I'd be looking around mesmerized.
we've been very lucky, have never been bitten by a shark or never been bitten by a crocodile. Is there a picture you still dream about taking? Oh my God, is there a picture? Well, the honest, you know, the honest uh, answer to that is there a picture? Well, uh, the, the, it's the next picture, obviously, that I dream about taking, but there's all sorts of things I would like to see. Uh, we're doing a lot of work shooting icebergs that are half in, half out of the water. A little bit above, a lot below, unseen, unheard of, faintly sculptural, intensely amazing. That's an iceberg. And if you can shoot the picture half above and half below, that's a wonderful way to go about it. I do a lot of pictures like that. I love these pictures when you're looking at the surface and you're looking beneath the surface. You've made that technique famous. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did that happen? And tell us one of your favorite photos that you took that way. Well, there's a, uh, to shoot a picture half in and half out of the water, uh, you combine the two elements of our planet, the air world and the water world. And this very thin surface of the water, scientists call the meniscus, is a gateway, a division between these two worlds. And that's why these pictures, these pictures are popular because you can, you literally are invited into this other world. You see the difference between two things. You see the difference between sunlight and shadow on the surface and color and depth beneath. And the trick is to combine uh, the motion and the creature underwater with the best that the atmosphere, the air world can afford. Are you yourself half in and half out? Yes, I'm sort of bobbing there or kneeling or standing you depending on where You must be a very I'm. good swimmer. No, I, you know, well, yeah, I can swim. <laughs> but that's not it. I mean, diving, diving doesn't require you to be a, a you know, it doesn't require you to be an incredible swimmer. It requires you to be happy in the water. You get seasick, isn't that right, on yeah, boats? I spend my entire life at sea, and I still get seasick. <laughs> funny. And why do you keep doing it? I want to... I want to see the rest of this world. I've always thought that the second greatest of all human attributes is curiosity. That's what my father taught me, curiosity. And I'm constantly curious about what is going on in this ocean. But there's another thing What's too. What's the first greatest, by the way? Kindness. Kindness. You know, you've taken extraordinary pictures of sea lions and fish, and they're so close to you. It looks like you were inches from them, and you are in many cases. <laughs> uh, you said a funny thing. You said fish hate to have their picture taken. <laughs> what did you mean? <laughs> they don't want, fish do not want to look in the camera. They hate me, and they hate us because we are huge monsters blowing bubbles, and most of the creatures in the sea are the size of your hand or smaller. So the last thing they want to do is have a, a portrait taken. I have hundreds of thousands of pictures of the rear ends of fish. <laughs> Let's talk about some of these photos. All around the world, tens of millions of people have seen your photos. They might not have known that you took it, but they know these <laughs> yeah. images. Yeah. How about this amazing one where you caught a diver in the middle of a perfect circle of barracuda. There was a long reef, kind of a peninsula of a reef that stuck out 
50, 60 feet down, near New Ireland in Papua New Guinea. Very clear water. And I swam over it. I was, I was alone. And I swam over it. And I was instantly surrounded by this enormous school of chevron barracuda. And what these barracudas do is they do this wonderful thing, which is a defensive mechanism. They make a perfect circle, absolutely geometric perfect circle. And geometry in the ocean is something that doesn't exist in a weightless, cornerless world. And there I was in the middle of this perfect circle, and I realized that I was in the middle of a picture that I wanted to take. And it's one of these things, it's a terrible realization. So I swam back to the boat, and I talked to uh, the captain, her name was Dinah Halstead. I said, Dinah, you gotta come with me. She said she jumped in the water in about two minutes, and we swam back to the, we swam side by side back to the barracudas, side by side. And as we got into this school, and they were still there, which is a wonderful thing, they began to circle again. And I crossed my fingers, I dove to the bottom. At about 45 feet, I rolled on my back and I looked up, and Dinah was in the middle of the circle. And the afternoon sun was glinting against the sides of the barracudas like a perfect silver wall. And then she did something amazing, instinctively, she held out her hand like a ballet dancer, like a pas de deux, or one half of pas de deux, and the barracuda circled, and they went three times around her, and then they disappeared. Did you know you had something? I knew I had a picture. I knew I had a picture, but this is film. Sometimes with film, we wouldn't see the images we made for three months. You'd shoot a lot, you'd shoot as much as you could, but it was all big casino. You didn't know what you were shooting. We would pack all our film into these wonderful little yellow cartons and they sent, sent us out with, with cartons, little tiny yellow cartons. They looked like sort of milk boxes as it were right now. And you'd put uh, 60 rolls of film in and you'd seal it up with uh, packing tape and he'd slap on the labels and do not x-ray labels on the addresses, and he'd take them down to uh, air freight, and he'd send them away. That's a year of your life. And Yeah, and you'd cross your fingers and hope they made it. Wow, did you pray that? <laughs> oh, prayed, I prayed to everything, you know. No black cats, cross your belt, no bananas on boats. Uh, uh, gosh, what else, everything that uh, is good luck and bad luck. And when I saw this edit in the editing room at, at National Geographic, I just said, oh my God, there's a picture. We published it in a story on Papua New Guinea that was written by Peter Benchley, and the picture is still with us today. You know, pictures are like that. You can't go home to the same place and make a better picture. It's all like this tranche, this slice of time that can't be repeated. One of David Dubelay's other most famous photos is of a stingray in a sailboat under a dramatically cloudy sky in Grand Cayman Island. It's impossible to do the photo justice with words. I mean, that's true about most photos, but you really ought to go look at this and some of Dubelay's other work online. This particular shot is one of those half-in, half-out-of-the-water compositions. 
there's motion and stillness all at the same time. And it is almost a surreal experience to take it in. You know, pictures, as a photojournalist, we are, we are looking for a way to convince the unconvinced. Pictures have power, and they have the power to illuminate, and they have the power to even humiliate. They certainly have the power to celebrate, and they have the power to open people's eyes to the sea. That's what pictures can do. When David Dubolet says pictures have the power to humiliate, he's talking largely about exposing humanity's abuse of the sea, like the photos he took of a pod of 1,500 dolphins driven into a harbor in Japan and systematically slaughtered before his eyes and his lens. Those photos were so graphic, they actually didn't get published for many years. But when they did, their impact was substantial. What David Dubolet communicates every day through pictures, Sylvia Earle communicates with information. And getting back to technology here, the key to gathering information from under the water is equipment. That's why Sylvia Earle decided in the early 80s that she would develop the next generation of equipment herself with the man who would become her second husband, Graham Hawks. Hawks was the creative engineer who configured that gym suit she wore for her famous walk along the bottom of the ocean. Together, they started a company called Deep Ocean Engineering to produce tiny submarines and underwater robots. Ten years later, after being chief scientist at NOAA, she founded another company, Deep Ocean Exploration and Research, now run by her daughter. We're as reliant on technology to explore the oceans as astronauts are or those who want to see the Earth from above, aviation, aerospace. Uh, we're, we're earthbound either way. <laughs> Without technology, we have a very limited perspective. And I constantly found myself frustrated diving, looking at my watch too little time, looking at my depth gauge. Oh, I can't go beyond this depth because I'll get into trouble. But I'm basically a biologist. I'm a scientist. What did I know as a biologist about law or accounting or dealing with the rules and regulations that the government imposes on, on the little businesses? But when you have a vision, a dream of something you want to do, you find out from sources you don't even know that you have them um, how to get from here to there. And she knew it was only logical that her experience should help shape the equipment she'd like to use for her work. The first product of her collaboration with Graham Hawks was the Deep Rover. It started with questions and dreams. Gee, I'd really like to be able to fly with a tuna fish. I'd really like to be able to hover midwater and balloon around with these lovely diaphanous jelly critters. I would love to be able to do whatever it is that you want to do, to reach out and pick up something without crushing it to have that sensory feedback. That's the sort of discussion that we had in the early days of, of getting acquainted. Why aren't there devices that make it possible to go down to the deepest part of the ocean? We are, after all, living in an age when spacecraft take us to the moon. We're talking about going to Mars. We're sending little robots beyond our own solar system. Why can't we go seven miles? It's just ridiculous. What's holding us back? Well, Graham, the good engineer, 
responded as an engineer would in describing all the problems that have inhibited our access to the great depths. Pressure, of course, at seven miles beneath the surface on the bottom, the pressure amounts to something on the order of 16,000 pounds per square inch. Sitting here in this room, we experience 14.7. So that's one of the problems, coming up with a material that is strong enough to endure that kind of great pressure. Their dialogue continued, and then one day, Graham Hawks pulled out a pen and made a sketch on that cliched napkin. And what he drew looks quite a bit like what ultimately became the one-person submarine called Deep Rover. It went down 3,000 feet, not all the way, but it did solve some of the confounding engineering issues using known materials. And it was equipped with manipulators that worked like extensions of the operator's own arms and hands. It, it has been possible even 60 years before in Beebe's bathysphere to go out and look through and see things, but Beebe experienced the same frustration that I did when I used submarines that did not have manipulators. He sort of scratch on the glass like a, a child in a candy store with, with no nickel. You, you can look, but you can't touch, you can't taste, you can't get beyond the, beyond the glass. So having a system that will go where your own arms cannot go is tremendously important. By the time Deep Rover was tested and proven, they were already working on the Deep Rover 2 and then Deep Flight, a system that behaves more like an aircraft underwater. Today, remotely operated vehicles, or ROVs, are the big thing. An unmanned vehicle heads to the deep, controlled by a human who stays above the water. The company Earl started has innovated this equipment too. It's certainly been useful for discovery, and it's safer. But many scientists, including Sylvia Earle, say they will never hang up their flippers because there's no substitute for the experience of immersing yourself, mind, eye, ear, hand, body, into the water you're exploring. She can see it on the faces of young people and her fellow scientists when they come up from a dive. That sense of awe, she believes, is where the hope lies in saving the oceans and saving ourselves. But what they can see today is just a fraction of what she discovered and what David Dubolet photographed 60 years ago when they started diving. What's the greatest underwater photo that the, you know? The greatest underwater photo ever made is not an underwater photo. It was made by astronaut William Anders on Christmas Eve, 1968. One of the most terrible years in our history, but in one, one split second, one of the most momentous, important images ever made. He pointed his camera out of the little tiny window of Apollo 8 as it was coming around the dark side of the moon. And there in the foreground is the moon. Everybody's seen this picture. And in the background is the Earth rising, as it were, against the absolute black velvet of space. It's not a blue marble, but it's a sapphire. And this picture says one thing to all of us, every single human on the planet. It says, that's all there is. But for me, and a few of my colleagues, 
like Dr. Sylvia Earle, that says this, this is a water planet, and blue is the color of life found nowhere else in the universe. Global climate change is a very, very real thing. We are working on a major project, part of a large grant from National Geographic, to take a look at coral in peril, mission coral, throughout the world. Coral reefs are the thermometer of our planet, the barometer of our planet, and they face enormous changes. Bathed in hot water right now, they bleach. The algae within the tissues of the coral leaves, the coral turns white, and in some cases, bleaches white and then dies. In the ocean, I have witnessed the decline of coral reefs by about half. In the time when I first began to dive. I, I had a moment of insight, I suppose, two years ago when I met an albatross at an island, Midway Island, known to those of you who follow uh, wartime activities. This was a bird, an albatross, sitting on her lone egg of the year, a laysan albatross. <laughs> And she was banded back in the 1950s. We know that she is a, a, at least 62 years old. She began to fly at about the same time I was learning how to dive. And I thought about what that bird had seen in her lifetime and what I had seen in mine. She and her mate, they fly over literally thousands of miles of ocean. They do it in order to get food, and mostly squid and small fish that they bring back to feed their hungry chick of the year, and of course themselves. But the changes in the ocean, more ships, more noise, more aircrafts over, overhead, fewer fish, fewer squid, all the stuff we've been putting in the ocean, clogging, our life support system. You think somehow if you put things in the ocean, it goes away. It doesn't. It stays there. There is no away in the ocean. So plastic especially, something that didn't exist when I was a kid. I come from the pre-plasticozoic. So where is it going? She may wonder. She certainly must recognize that the world has changed. She doesn't know why. And even if she did know why, wouldn't know what to do about it. Well, I am burdened with knowing. It's one of those things that humans now know more than, than anyone could know even 50 years ago, let alone a 1,000. Our decisions that have consumed the natural world to the point of collapse were not made because we want to destroy the natural world. It isn't because we don't care. It's because we didn't know it mattered. But now we know it matters. The ocean, it's where most of the oxygen comes from. I mean, trees, yes, grass, yes, ferns, all the green stuff on the land. But the ocean, Prochlorococcus, a bacterium that we just discovered in the mid-1980s, didn't even know it existed, is responsible for generating 20% of the oxygen in the atmosphere. Who knew? One in every five breaths you take generated by a creature so small that it took a special technique 
during, and quite by chance, looking for something else and stumbled on Prochlorococcus. Huh, I mean, how many of you have heard of Prochlorococcus? Yay, woo-hoo! <laughs> Kids will be putting on their T-shirts soon. We should be singing the praises of this little guy. And by the way, Prochlorococcus is just one of the phytoplankton that produces oxygen for us. Scientists estimate that we have the ocean to thank for about 70% of the oxygen in our atmosphere. Sylvia Earle believes that everybody should be able to understand that statistic and act accordingly. Well, I'm an eternal, unflappable, I guess, optimist. I do believe that if people know better, they'll do better. I, I consider myself a good businesswoman. I want the assets that keep this business running, this business of humankind on this planet, not just the next quarter. I look at the resources the way somebody would look at the inventory. What have we got here? Can we make the next generation and the one beyond that and the one beyond that? Let me put it this way. This planet needs you. This ocean needs people. It needs engineers. It needs artists. It certainly needs scientists. It needs economists. It needs poets. It needs writers. It needs construction people. It needs everything that humans can throw at it. Our very survival depends on the survival of the ocean. We need all the knowledge we can get. We are living on an ocean planet, and we know so little about it. The final word from David Dubelay. In addition to his work as a contributing photographer in residence for National Geographic, he is a columnist, a contributing editor, and author of 12 books. My personal favorites are Light in the Sea and Fish Face. He's also a founding member of the International League of Conservation Photographers. You heard excerpts from his 2018 interview with the Academy of Achievement and from his remarks to Academy delegates from around the world in 2008. Sylvia Earle, in addition to all her other groundbreaking work as an oceanographer, is the founder of Mission Blue, which works to establish marine protected areas, or as she calls them, hope spots. There are 94 of them around the world so far. She's also an original member of the Ocean Elders, a group of global leaders also working to protect the ocean's habitat and its wildlife. Dr. Earl spoke to the Academy of Achievement in 1991 and 2001. You also heard excerpts of her remarks to Academy delegates recorded at the International Achievement Summit in 2014. Thanks to our interviewers, Mark Pachter, Gail Eichenthal, and Mary Jordan. And thank you for listening. I'm Alice Winkler. And somehow I feel inspired to go take a swim. This is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is made possible with funding from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. See you next time.